All right, guys. If you have a Bible with you, please turn or whatever you do to get to that page. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. So, if you were with us last week, what we did is we kicked off a study of the book of 1 Timothy. And in this letter, what basically it is, is the Apostle Paul writes to his apprentice, Timothy, because there's an issue going on in the church in Ephesus. And what Paul does is he um, tells Timothy how to straighten things up, how to get things in order in the church. And specifically what we find there is that what was going on in Ephesus is there was false teachers going around, stirring up, uh, uh, stirring up dissension, uh, teaching false uh, doctrine, starting up unnecessary controversies. And so these leaders, you have to understand, were people that Paul said they taught things, they might have said things that came from the Bible, but they were really lacking, um, they, they, were more, they were more based on controversy, and they were simply looking uh, to stir up trouble. They had no ability to actually affect people's real lives. And so I believe that these leaders no doubt saw themselves as being important people in all of this. As a matter of fact, they like to, if they like to start trouble, chances are they saw themselves as somewhat revolutionaries in all this. See, I believe sometimes we think that the only way to have an impact on our world is to be like these men and to stir up trouble. After all, that's what revolutionaries do, right? Now, don't get me wrong, guys. I'm not opposed to changing the world. I want to do that. But what we have to do is ask ourselves that whether or not the approach we take to doing so is really the wisest, really the most biblical way to affect change in our world. See, what we find in the Bible that I hope to show you this week is that the approach advocated is quite different than this. As we'll see, Paul encouraged men and women to be faithful to the work God had set before them, to aim to live a quiet life, and to trust God to change people's hearts. And by doing so, he would change the entire world around them. Now, the irony in doing all this is that even though maybe Paul encourages people to live a quiet life, Jesus and his followers, Paul included, really did turn the world upside down but not perhaps in the same way we might expect, which brings us to our passage for this morning. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and if you are able to, what I want to ask you to do this morning is to stand where you are for the reading of God's Word. We read, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm not telling, I am not lying, I am telling the truth, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, 
not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's Word. You can be seated. Okay, so we already mentioned the idea there's a desire in everyone to make an impact in life. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that if we want to make an impact for God's glory in the world, we have to do so on His terms. Now, I don't usually do this. I'm not really a points kind of preacher, but it really worked well for this week's sermon. So uh, what I want to do is run through the passage with you, and I'm going to give you uh, six ways, six points, if you will, to change the world around us according to Paul's letter. First one. Here we go. Pray for those who have the authority to make change. Let me say that again. Pray for those who have the authority to make change. Verses 1 through 3 read, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. See, Paul isn't labeling those in authority here as specifically good or evil. He's not saying everybody in power is good. He's not saying everybody in power is evil. They could be friends. They could be enemies. But let's just say for a second, what if they are your enemies? Let's say they are all God-hating individuals. Well, what did Jesus tell us to do for our enemies? He told us to pray for them. Now, we have to draw a balance here. Does this mean we should never stand in opposition to those in authority? Not necessarily. If you've been reading through Acts with us uh, these last two weeks, you'll note that often the apostles had to stand in opposition to the ruling authorities. Peter said it well when he was drugged in front of a council, and they told him to stop sharing the message of Jesus rising from the dead. This is Peter's response. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, he says, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. See, there are times when we should abide by and times when it is right to oppose authority. The historical response from Christian churches has basically been to say that no one can force you to do what God forbids and no one can stop you from doing what God commands you to do. See, Paul's aim is that we keep the gospel first and foremost in our view. And so if we want to see real and lasting change, ultimately, we only find it on God's terms. So Paul, what he does here is instructs them to pray for those leaders because God is able to do more than we could ever imagine. See, also one of the things you're going to notice is prayer comes up a lot in this section. But why prayer? Well, more so than any other thing, prayer relies on God to act on our behalf. Nothing else so much is a test of our faith than the act of praying to God. Because in prayer, what are we doing? We're just asking. We're doing nothing. We're expecting God to hear, God to respond. Now, does it mean that we stop talking about Jesus? Does that mean that that's all we do is pray? Not at all. But God is able to do things that, that our words 
just can't do on their own, namely change a person's heart. And that's what Paul's asking them to do here. Pray for these people that God might change their heart, that they might be able to live a peaceful and quiet life. Speaking of hearts, that brings me to my next point. Know where God's heart is. Verse 4 says, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Paul's point is you don't know what God has in store for someone. And Paul, um, more so than anyone, knows this idea firsthand. See, trust me, most of us, if we knew Paul when he was alive, and especially before he was a Christian, would have considered him a lost cause. However, God had other plans for him. See, the Lord knows what he wants to do. The question is whether or not we trust him to actually do it. And see, this should shape the way we see the future. Our attitude for the future should be optimistic because we know God's plan for the world. He desires people from all walks of life to be saved, all types of people, even the people we might now see as our enemies. But how can we be certain of this? How can we be certain that God will accomplish this plan? That brings me to my next point. Next way we bring about real and lasting change in our world, understand who has the power to make real change. Verses 5 and 6 we read, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We sang the song right beforehand. We might ask, what's a mediator? Like we don't always, unless you go into uh, legal things, you may or may not be familiar with what a mediator is. Essentially, a mediator is a middleman. Uh, in times past, the mediator between God and man would have been thought to be the high priest. Uh, in Israel, the high priest would enter the most sacred place in all the land once a year, the Holy of Holies in the temple. There he would offer sacrifices and prayers for the people of Israel. However, Jesus, by being both God and man, stands as the perfect, the better middleman between God and man. And it's all related to who he is. See, because God took on human nature in Jesus, he understands your temptations and he understands what you're going through, no matter what it is. Jesus is familiar with struggles and suffering. But not only that, because he is perfect, offering up himself as the sacrifice in our place, he's also able to destroy the barrier between man and God. So now when we pray, we pray that Jesus is praying to God, that we know that Jesus is also going to God the Father on our behalf with our requests. And trust me, guys, the Father hears the Son. Now that's what God can do. And Jesus is the only way to God. And since Jesus is the only way to God, that brings me to the next point. Don't count anyone out. Verse 7 reads, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. See, Paul specifically refers to himself as a teacher of the Gentiles here. Now, if you recall from last week, the false teachers desired to be teachers of the law, the Mosaic law, the Jewish law. Now, there was a trend amongst leaders to then exclude Gentiles unless they submitted to all types of different laws. Paul, however, was not... Now, understand, Paul wasn't opposed to witnessing to the Jews. As a matter of fact, he would often start his missionary 
journey into a new city by going to the local synagogue, but it didn't stop there. See, when the Messiah arrived, he was not excluding the Jews, but rather calling that people everywhere, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles are just non-Jewish people, to turn from their sins and follow him. And so by calling himself an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is calling his opponents out here, saying, in essence, the same God who called me to preach to you also called me to preach to them. See, just as we don't know who God might save, so we cannot limit who the gospel message is for. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that God is calling people from all walks of life to be his people. And so we cannot count anyone out, no matter how far off they may seem presently. All right? Now, we know that God's able and willing to change people completely, and so he calls us to pray to him and ask him to do just that, to bring people from all walks of life into his kingdom. What about us, then? Is prayer the only thing we're supposed to do? Is there something more, something else we can do to help point people to Jesus? Yes, and that brings us to the fifth point. Be known for the right reasons. Verses 8 through 10 we read, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works." Okay, in both situations here, Paul's offering an alternative to what we would actually expect from both people. See, men, rather than lift their hands to fight, should be lifting their hands together to pray. Then Paul turns to women and says instead of focusing on their external beauty, he calls them to focus on their internal beauty, things like self-control and good works, which, by the way, ladies, last forever. Now, There's something we should understand. I need to pump the brakes for a second. Just because Paul addresses men and women separately here, we shouldn't assume that he's pointing that what he's doing is only singling them out. So the things that he's saying at this moment for men and women would apply to both. Women should also pray, and men should also exemplify self-control and good works. These things aren't like exclusive to a certain uh, to a certain sex. Rather, what Paul's doing here is pointing out commonalities, especially ones that would have been the case in the Ephesian church at this time, in both of these sexes as a way to promote a godly lifestyle. Now, does that mean that men never overly focus on their beauty or women never fight? No, not at all. Paul wants us to consider that what stands out about ourselves, what do we want that to be? And if we want something to stand out about us and our lives, let it be the right things. So what does that look like? What is actually standing up, uh, letting the right things in our life, letting uh, godly character stand out in our lives? What does that actually look like practically? Well, that brings me to my sixth point. Aim to thrive where God has placed you. Let me say that again. Aim to thrive where God has placed you. Verses 11 through 15 read, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 
Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, let me be up front here. This is by far the longest of these points because it's absolutely the most controversial. And some of you, the moment I read this at the beginning, were like, where is he going with this? Let me explain. I think I, can, I think I can explain this passage and put it all in its context. First off, I do want to note what this isn't specifically saying. The passage is not saying that a woman cannot have any part in the gathering of the church. So take, for example, Paul's word, words elsewhere uh, to the church at Corinth. So to the church at Corinth, he writes, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, let me pause for a second. I ain't going to explain anything about the head coverings here. That's a sermon for another day. What I do want to point out here is that Paul clearly allowed for women to pray and prophesy in church gatherings. Both of these activities, by the way, are vocal activities. He isn't restricting women to basically only playing handbells in the church choir. If you're a handbell player, no offense. But because to pray and to prophesy means you have to speak out loud. So we have to understand that uh, quietness and submission doesn't mean that a woman comes to church and can't say a thing. If she says hi to someone, she's, she's in sin, therefore. Second, we have to understand that quietness and submissiveness in the Bible are not viewed as negative things. See, the moment we hear, be quiet and submissive, we think there's something wrong going on here. We think that basically Paul is saying that there's something negative. However, Paul has already stated in this chapter that we should pray that we could all live a quiet life. Quietness is often used synonymous with peacefulness. So quietness gets a bad rap. And if quietness gets a bad rap, submission gets a worse rap. So we often assume that because someone is submissive, that means that a person can have no opinion or ability to express themselves. Not so. See, the Bible calls both men and women to submit to authorities at certain points in time. So far, obviously, as we said, is they're not being led to sin or forbidden to do good works. Let me give you some examples. In his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul also instructs them to give thanks to God by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is Ephesians 5.21. So there is an act of submission that all the members of the church have for one another, and that act, that submission, is an act of worship. Ultimately, we are all called, first and foremost, guys, to submit to God as Lord. See, elsewhere, James writes in chapter 4 of James, verses 7 through 8, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And all other forms of submission rest on this first submission. Guys, as Christians, we first and foremost submit to God as Lord, to Jesus as Lord. And so we listen to his word. And we even, if you were here the first week we launched, we talked about this. Genesis chapter 1, the first point is that the God of the Bible is the Lord of everything. 
And so as Lord, what God does is he sets up other authorities in place which people are to submit to. If you're a parent, this is a form of authority. Your kids are meant to submit to you. They're supposed to listen to you. There's, if, there's, if your kids start taking over the house, that's a nightmare. That's not biblical parenting. It's also important to point out that Paul is responding to a particular situation here, guys. See, we've already seen that these false teachers are stirring people up. It's believed that one way that they would do so was by stirring up dissension through some of the women, particularly the young widows, in the congregation. So that's the problem, that's the situation that he's walking into. So, needless to say in all this, submission has been wrongfully maligned. It's not a bad thing. In fact, when it works right, it's a good, good thing, a beautiful thing. Now, this all leads back to the big question. In what way and to whom is Paul calling these women to be quiet and to submit to? What I want to suggest to you is that the persons in question here are the leaders, specifically the elders of the church. See, we read, and we'll get into this more so in weeks to come, but that those who are the chief leaders of the church, which we call elders or pastors, hold a specific authority and responsibility. Elsewhere, we are also told that, even, that they not only hold specific authority and responsibility, but that they're held to a higher standard and, have a, and undergo a harsher judgment because of it. Now, in a healthy setting, in a healthy church, which Ephesus was not, or this letter would not have been written, those elders have to show a proven track record to validate that authority. Also, they think, so in case, so first, you don't elect elders that haven't, to some extent, proven themselves. There's a, there's a proving ground for it. Not only that, but elders aren't um, untouchable either. Uh, in order to make sure that they don't think they can simply get away with anything, the Bible puts a system in place to where, where elders can be removed who have not upheld their responsibilities, which we'll get into a later date as well in our discussion. So, that's what an elder is. In essence, I believe that the teaching and exerting authority which Paul forbids women from doing here is the teaching and authority of an elder. See, the elders lead the church and do so primarily through the means of teaching. Uh, for example, I'm a pastor, an elder here. You see me preach and teach every, uh, uh, basically every week. Robin's also one of our elders. And the difference, but, and one of the things that will come up as we go along, by the way, guys, is that the primary difference between an elder and a deacon, as we'll see, is that elders have to be able to teach. Why? Because that's how they primarily lead. Now, this doesn't mean that men can't learn anything from women. Guys, I've learned a ton of uh, amazing things from amazing women of the faith and continue to do so. Ironically, Paul's letter here is addressed to Timothy, who the first thing we learn about, one of the things we learn about Timothy is that he learned the faith from his mother and his grandmother. Awesome women of the faith. Nor is this about intelligence. There are plenty of women who are smarter than plenty of men. That's not what he's saying here. 
So what's the basis of Paul saying this? Well, what Paul appeals to here is mankind's first sin for evidence of why he holds this rule. This might be where it gets a little confusing. Verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was deceived, but the woman was deceived. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Adam wasn't absent when Eve was deceived. If we read Genesis, we realize he was literally just sitting by passively while the devil tempted her and she gave in to temptation. Genesis tells us he was doing just that. So then, and not only that, the chief blame for the sin entering the world falls on Adam's shoulders. So what's going on there? Well, what Adam did when Eve was deceived is that he neglected his role as the head of his household and sat by passively while his wife was deceived, and then rather than stand up and protect her, he simply passively followed her into sin. In other words, I believe that what Paul is saying is that when Eve was first deceived, it was because she was put in a position she was never meant to have. So, that's the, that's, that's the idea there. Okay? Then is, if we thought we were out of the woods, Paul ends on like the, the most controversial possible thing he could say. Verse 15, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, so let's get it out in the open. We hear the word saved, and it sounds like Paul is saying that God is not going to let women into heaven if they don't have babies and raise them well. I get that that sounds weird. So that hints us to, that should drive us to ask the question, what is he saying here? That's, let me just throw out from right now, that's not the case. Why? Because Paul consistently writes that a person is saved or justified in God's sight by the same way that men are, by God's grace displayed through trusting in Jesus as the one who died in our place for our sins. So let me give you a couple examples from Scripture. Galatians 2.21, Paul writes, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul also writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then last but not least, let me give you one more. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Paul also writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, Paul always opposes the idea that you can be made right with God through your works. And I've just spent about 40 days home with my wife, seeing what raising some of the kids are is like. And trust me, guys, it's work. So if that, so there's, so right from the get-go, we have to understand that idea. So then what's he saying here? Well, 
you have to understand that the Bible uses the word saved in a couple of different ways. Uh, now, I'm going to borrow this from another pastor, but it's a good one, and it illustrates the concept well. The Bible talks about saved in being saved in about three ways we can know. First, we've been saved from the punishment for sin. This is the way we tend to refer to salvation or justification, is being saved from the punishment of sin. However, we are also being saved from the power of sin over our lives. This is all, all often referred to as sanctification. And what I'm going to argue here essentially is that that's what Paul is talking about when it says she will be saved. And then last but not certainly least, we will one day be saved from the very presence of sin. This is what is often referred to as glorification and will not occur until Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. So, in what sense we have to ask is Paul using the term here? And we have to look at what makes sense in the context. And in context here, Paul has been consistently explaining the character of a person's life. And that suggests that he is referring to salvation here as being saved from the power of sin over our lives. If you need more examples, just go look back. See his previous statements of praying rather than fighting or being adorned with good works rather than jewels. So what does Paul mean? He's saying that the primary means by which a woman is kept from the temptation and power of sin over her life is by laboring in the sphere of life or role where God has placed her. Now, Paul is fully aware that some women can't or don't have kids. Paul himself was an unmarried man, and we would assume that if this was some kind of necessary precursor to actually getting into heaven, he would have, uh, he would have probably helped the lady out by marrying her. The principle behind what we want to do when we do this is look to the principle. What's the overarching principle that he's teaching? And the principle behind what he's saying here is that a woman... To be faith, is to be faithful in where God has place, placed her. Let me say that again. The principle at work here is that a woman is to be faithful where God has placed her. But here's the thing, guys. That's true for men, too. So men need to be, men and women everywhere need to understand and thrive, as I say, work where God has placed them, with the role God has placed them in life. So why does Paul just mention women here? Well, as I've already mentioned, there was a specific problem with some of the women in Ephesus, and that's what he is addressing here. He is not saying something like a woman's place is merely in the kitchen or anything like that. If you want an example, just go look up Proverbs 31 and read what an ideal woman looks like. Trust me, she has multiple jobs. So, let me show you how I think this principle could apply to men as well. So, Say, guys, you work for an employer, which most do, and you are constantly trying to undermine his authority and like, act like you are the boss of, on the job. I would say that you, even if you are a man, are not being faithful in the role God has placed you in, and you are still in violation of this same principle we see here. So, we said a lot. Let me try to sum up this section for the sake of further clarity. We should aim to be faithful in the role God has placed us in. Some roles are specific to men. Paul instructs women to not to try to assert, usurp that authority specifically in the church, but rather to continue in love, holiness, and self-control. As I said before, guys, 
also, men aren't off the, aren't, aren't off the hook for self-control either. But once again, the principle has application to both, and so we're all called to pursue faithfulness where God has placed us. Now, if you have more questions about this, because I understand this is a bit of a controversial topic, feel free to email me. I'm happy to talk to you about this further. But I, and I want to be clear on what the passage is teaching, but I refuse to tweak it to fit the interpretation some would simply like it to have. To do so would be to neglect God's ultimate authority, and I have no desire to do that, guys. So let's bring this all back together. What's the big idea that God is trying to tell us from this passage? It's that Christians should be known for humble obedience, asking God to make an impact wherever we are at in life. This is true for all of us, men and women, young and old. God has called each and every one of us to trust that He is Lord, and what that means is that we can rest at peace and pursue a changed life, knowing the ultimate victory in life is already won. If you think about it, if there was uncertainty about the way history is ultimately going to pan out, then we might be prone to do whatever we think is necessary in order to get the results we want out of life, even if that means compromising our character. However, if Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, having already defeated the power of sin, death, and Satan, then you and I can trust that He is going to work out all things together for His glory. Basically, knowing that Jesus is one, we don't have to cheat or change the rules. This whole situation in Ephesus is centered around certain people trying to control the people around them for their desires. However, repeatedly in this passage, we're told the, the value of self-control. Why is that? Well, it's because God has everything under control. And so we can focus on Him. We can focus on following Him and trust that He'll do the work which really only God can do. Now, if you want to change the world, you have to change people's minds. You have to change people's hearts. And only God can change someone's heart. So what do we do? We focus on obeying God wherever we are in life, and we pray. By praying, we call upon someone a lot more powerful than ourselves, and also a lot wiser too. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You cannot control what tomorrow will bring, but you can control what you will do when tomorrow comes. Guys, thanks be to God that we can trust that no matter what tomorrow brings, He holds the future. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a mediator, a person who goes before God the Father on our behalf. And Lord, we ask you to, uh, to teach us, to change our hearts, to help us to apply these concepts, to be people who strive to thrive wherever you have placed us in life. Let us be known for prayer. Let us be known for self-control and good works. God, let that be the thing that people notice about us. Because we believe that when those are the things that pe people take notice of, they will start to ask questions. Why are you like that? And then when they ask that, Lord God, let us be quick. Give us the words to explain that we are this way because we serve a great God and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.